Machine. My name is Rob, and I'm here with my co-hosts Noah, hello, and Emily. Sup? And we're ready to get wild. This week's theme is the Wild West, and our episode will be more sultry than May West, crazier than Kanye West, <laughs> and attempt even more puns than Adam West's Batman. <laughs> nice. So follow us down this perilous path to the frontier America. Marvel at the amber waves of grain, the purple mountain majesty, and of course, the fruited plain. <laughs> And on this journey, on this journey, we will each share a fact that we learned this week about the Wild West. Our facts will be followed at the end by a pub-style trivia quiz, loosely inspired by the theme. Uh, also, a reminder to our listeners: details are forthcoming of our fabled live show. Ooh, details! <laughs> we went for di- very different vibes there. Yeah, we did. I was like, "Woo!" and you were like, "Woo!" Yeah, sorry. Right. Both, both woos. So yeah, yeah in our own way. Uh, and before we get started, just a reminder to check out our social media accounts on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod, and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. And with that, we'll begin today's podcast with Noah. This week, I learned. Every year since 2012, the Willamette Historical Society in Oregon hosts Oregon Trail Live, an educational reenactment of the challenges of life on the trail, including wagon caulking, hunting with Nerf guns, and a three-legged dysentery race. Oh, no. we'll, we'll get into that later. <laughs> dysentery should never be a race. Oh, <laughs> um, so... As many of you may know, uh, the Oregon Trail is a roughly 2,200-mile-long wagon route that connected Missouri to Oregon, and on the way spanned Kansas, Nebraska, Wyoming, Idaho also. Uh, So fur traders actually established the trail between 1811 and 1840, with the first wagon train leaving Independence, Missouri in 1836. Many of these fur traders, interestingly, worked for the Pacific Fur Company, which was a subsidiary of the American Fur Company, which was owned by John Jacob Astor, uh, the namesake of such New York neighborhoods as Astor Place and Astoria, Mm -hmm. as well as the city of Astoria, Oregon, at the other end of the trail. Wow. Yeah, pretty cool. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Um, I wish I'd found that out for our New York episode, (laughs) (laughs) but instead it'll be in this one. Early groups of travelers included the Oregon Dragoons, who carried a large flag that was emblazoned with their motto, Oregon or the Grave. (laughs) <laughs> which, wow. which was a promise that the many dangers on the journey were happy to oblige. <laughs> so from 1836 until 1843, most of the parties were pretty small, no more than a few families. And then came the Great Migration of 1843, when somewhere between 700 to 1,000 travelers left for Oregon, led by a former U.S. Army captain who charged $1 per person. Now... This makes it sound like it was pretty cheap, but actually the cost for an average person to travel the Oregon Trail ranged anywhere from absolutely nothing. Maybe they signed on uh, to sort of help herd cattle uh, and their wages were basically what it cost to get them from, say, Missouri all the way to the Willamette Valley in Oregon. Hmm. Or it could cost hundreds of dollars by hiring somebody to like help them navigate the treacherous trail uh, and get all the way there. Wow. Most of the danger that people who were on this trail faced were from disease. And I think it was somewhere about... 
I think 3% of all travelers died of cholera with many other diseases uh, claiming for their lives. And I think that the total dead was in the tens of thousands. I think between 10 and 20,000. Wow. So all these people heading out to Oregon um, reminds me of, of accounts that I've seen of people just having no idea what they were getting into. There were people who made a living out of going like five miles into the Oregon Trail and then picking up all the things that people had brought that were completely <laughs> impractical, like portraits and grandfather clocks <laughs> and things that were just absurd to try to bring yeah. to Oregon, but no one had told them. Like, it, it's so sad that so many people died, but there was just really bad PR. People brought, like, grandfather clocks? People brought, well. like, their worldly possessions, as if they were just going to, like, plop down a new house in Oregon. Just from, from all the stuff from their <laughs> yeah, old house. like whatever used to be there. <laughs> okay. So wait, so these possessions were found in like abandoned wagons because people didn't make the trip, or were they just kind of like no, they were tossed found, like, out on route, like ten, oh, we don't have a space for this. Ten anymore. miles west of St. Louis was just like a <laughs> stack oh, of geez. stuff. People were like, wait a minute. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, of those who actually made it, um, the people who settled at the end of the Oregon Trail, which was in Willamette Valley. One of the big issues was how do you organize the like land claims of all these people who are arriving, basically under the impression that they can go there and just get a plot of incredibly fertile, beautiful land, which it was very beautiful there. <laughs> so when you're when you, all these people are arriving in Wilmot Valley, they had to find some way of organizing them. And I thought I read about this; and it was pretty interesting. Uh, it was called the Organic Laws of Oregon, which I thought <laughs> sounded like something that could have been drafted in Oregon today. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, all food in Oregon must be organic. Um, but it's actually something from, from around this time, 18, I think, 40s or something. So one of the ways that they tried to organize land claims was uh, by giving special treatment to married couples. So uh, a married couple could go and get about, I think it's 640 acres of land, um, basically at no cost, provided that they demonstrated they planned to like improve the land or build on it, etc. If you were a single person, you could go there, I think, especially Especially if you were a male single person, um, you could go there and get 320 acres of land. And I'm not sure how I see that that's more, <laughs> you know, per person. Because they made a big deal out of you getting more if you're a married couple. Or like it being some special deal. But mm-hmm. it was 640. And then if you went there as a single person, I think it was 320. But I think, and it's, that's half. Yeah. Well, so, see, it's more because when you're married as a woman back then, they actually considered you a person. <laughs> So then you got as much as a single man would. Right. Maybe I that's guess, what it is. So I guess it's a married man got twice as much land. Maybe right. that's it. That's actually, Interesting. yeah. That's it. No, I'm more depressed now. Anyways, uh, carry maybe. on. But anyway, so it's there in the Willamette Valley that we come to the originators of our fact, the Willamette Historical Society, who in honor of the Oregon Trail put on what appears to be an absolutely awesome educational festival every year called Oregon Trail Live. Where the motto is, quote, you've played the video game, but can you survive the real thing? Huh. <laughs> and that so Oregon tra- decidedly less fun. <laughs> Any game that includes the phrase survive, but well, I'll keep it open. I'm, I'm picturing like a very role models kind of thing. Have you ever seen the movie Role Models? No. No. Oh, it's bad. Like... <laughs> Selling it really well. <laughs> well, let's see how you feel uh, after I explain to you some of the challenges. So at Oregon Trail Live, teams compete in challenges such as the three-legged dysentery race. I mentioned that before. Mm. It took me a lot of researching to figure out what the deal with this is. Because, <laughs> I mean, I, I, the three-legged dysentery race, it's you know two people, like obviously their leg is tied together. It's just a three-legged race. Mm. What makes it, what's the dysentery part of it? And I read a couple articles, and I couldn't figure out, like, what precisely 
was the point of this? Like, why were they running? And the I think closest I got was uh, the point was it's like you running sort of like a little off balance to an outhouse. <laughs> oh, see, I was thinking like it's an, another form of having the runs. Oh, <laughs> that could Maybe. definitely be it. That makes sense. I thought, I mean, I read it some reference to you're running like toward an outhouse, but that makes so much more sense. It could be both. <laughs> All right. right. I'll check that one off the list. Now I understand there you go. that. I mean, it's pretty clear, though, why it's not a, a sack race, because then you wouldn't have to run to the outhouse. <laughs> That's an elephantitis race. <laughs> oh. Don't look that up. Okay. <laughs> um, another really great one is, uh, it, so some of these challenges come from the game. Like, in the game, you had to carry game meat. I don't know if you remember that. Um, so one of the things, it was you had to drag a 200-pound man in a cow costume in a wagon up a hill. <laughs> and we'll post on Instagram. There are some amazing, amazing pictures from the Oregon Trail Live Facebook group about this. Where it's just a guy in, like, a cow, like, onesie. And he's just sitting in a wagon, just having a time of his life. And it looks incredible. Um, another great one is there's a station where you bury your ill-fated team member. Um, and this is a uh, actually portrayed by a paper doll that they give you. Um, but there is a priest on call to help you out and give like a funeral. Uh, and then there's also a gravestone making station. Oh. Um, and I saw one looking through again the Oregon Trail Live Facebook group, which is great. They have like hundreds of pictures from the events, and it was one for <laughs> Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> I don't know why they decided to pick on Pee Wee Herman, but it said it was like here lies Pee Wee Herman. He died of uh, cholera, dysentery, and bad life choices. And it was like it's obviously. <laughs> written by a child like it's, it's just very very weird um so another one it says rest it says r.i.p and then below that rest in peace it's like why did you abbreviate it? Just, just to break it down uh, it says, those were his initials yeah <laughs> r.i.p van winkle um some of them are like uh in the background of this picture uncle bob thanks for the money 1800 to 1850 <laughs> and then uh Phineas Bix was a simple man who owed plenty pennies to Banker Man, repaid his debt on the Oregon Trail, found a snake in his boot, and his heart did fail. <laughs> wow. Jeez. And what's kind of funny about all these is that um, there actually probably weren't that many gravestones on the Oregon Trail. I mean, maybe mm -hmm. a few, but it was actually a very common practice to bury people in unmarked graves. And not just to dig a hole and throw someone in it, someone in it without, like any marker but also to camouflage the grave and like run wagons over it a lot so it didn't look like it was a grave at all like pack the earth down hmm. and that was so for a couple of things one that like animals wouldn't come by and dig up the bodies hmm. and secondly sort of to your point from before like bandits and people would come take things that might be buried with people oh right yeah, yeah. um so another thing that I'm obsessed with. I desperately want to go to this event, and it's in September every year, so sometime we should go. Mm. Um, so one, go. one of these things is you can get a drink at Miss Millie's Saloon, Dance Hall, Gambling Den, and Arm Wrestling Emporium. <laughs> <laughs> and um, appropriately for this podcast, the entire competition ends with a, quote, homesteaders exam in which the teams answer historical trivia questions about the real Oregon Trail. And in an article about uh, Oregon Trail Live, Willamette Heritage Center Education Coordinator Kathleen Schultz added that she served as the sheriff for the first edition of the games and said that everybody is bribable for the information. I got two pennies from the future and a raspberry granola bar for helping a team pass. <laughs> 
two pennies from the future. <laughs> <laughs> that was emphasis added. Just so, you <laughs> so this makes me think about obviously Oregon Trail, the video game, which I clearly yes. played for much of my childhood. And I think I don't know if we've talked about it here, but it has a really cool origin story. Yeah. It was um, an elementary school teacher who was given two weeks to design a curriculum for his class that was studying like frontier yeah. America. I'm sorry, he was actually a high school teacher. I'm sorry, he was, was a high school student. Who oh, was a goodness. student teacher at an elementary school oh, in 1971, yeah. And so, so that was like cool. part of his project, is he and another student teacher, they were high school students, built this game together. Sorry, but go yeah, on no. and tell this story that I'm telling. <laughs> no, no, because like I, I wanted to just pay homage to the fact that he, he did that and then basically deleted it when they yeah. were done with the project. And then he got a job um, working at uh, the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium where they were like, oh, why don't you build that? That sounded really cool. And he said he actually took the time to research the things he'd built into the game the first time yeah. and to like make it more accurate. Uh, and it became this like very well-selling game. And it, it's, it may still be the best-selling educational computer game in America. Really? What about Carmen Sandiego? That's a good question. I don't know. Let's, but I it, just, you know what? I'll edit it up. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> But, <laughs> Not good enough to stay in. <laughs> but so what, what caught my attention was a line on the Wikipedia page for the game that said it is the like it was to a point the best selling educational game in the U.S. and is the only best is the only educational video game in the video game Hall of Fame. Oh wow! And I said the what? <laughs> <laughs> and so I looked for the video game Hall of Fame oh, where that's I found. Awesome. In 2015, they had the inaugural class of video games to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Oh, as late as 2015. That was the first year. I'm actually surprised it wasn't much earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And so there are 12 games, I believe, currently in it now, uh, six of which were in the inaugural class. Mm -hmm. And so those original six that made it in were Doom, Pac-Man, Pong, Super Mario Brothers, Tetris, and World of Warcraft. Hmm. Which is interesting. World of Warcraft was 11 years old at the time of that inauguration. Hmm. More surprisingly, though, Minecraft, which was only four years old, was in that class of nominees. Wow. Um, so there's a bunch of other games. It didn't make it in that round. Didn't make it. Oregon Trail was for, uh, in the first uh, kind of nomination, did not make it. Uh, Angry Birds, Legends of Zelda, Sims, um, those were all in that first nomination class. Oregon Trail got its day in the sun in 2016 in the second class, so it was in the second wave of games. Um among the top 10 to be brought into the Hall of Fame, along with Legend of Zelda, well-deserved, um, Sonic the Hedgehog, Space Invaders, and The Sims, and then one game that hadn't been nominated the year before, Grand Theft Auto Three. Hmm. Clearly the Specific. best. <laughs> and then, Well, you know it's the best because they stopped making them after that. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's interesting to watch the progression of games as they get, uh, as they get nominated into this Hall of Fame. They've become very selective. Um, so last year they, they brought in four. Oh, sorry, in 2017, I should say. They brought in Pokemon Red and Blue as one unit, because it is basically the same game, but they made you buy both. Bastards. Um, Street Fighter Two, Donkey Kong, and Halo Combat Evolved. Cool. And so basically with every passing year, I know less and less of the games. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I believe the, the physical embodiment of the Hall of Fame is in the, uh, the History Museum, The Strong, in Rochester, New York. So if you ever want to stop in and see... I don't know, probably all the stuff that's in my basement. Like, you can go there, too. <laughs> Is that your pickup line, Rob? <laughs> you can either come to my basement or go to Rochester. <laughs> so, in relation to your fact, I kind of looked into sort of other efforts towards uh, building replicas or kind of performing reenactments of uh, life in the Wild West. And I have to say, there's quite... Uh, 
a market and also like substantial level of enthusiasm um, and participation in reenacting Wild West towns, Um, not only in terms of like maintaining ghost towns, but even building up replica towns from Mm -hmm. scratch. And it's not limited to the U.S. either. Um, I found a couple of examples of uh, amusement park type places in Germany. Um, There's a pretty intense replica Wild West town in Kent, England called Laredo. Um, But a few of Laredo is a real city in Texas. Yeah. Whoa. Well, there you go. <laughs> Very authentic, then. Yeah. Um, but a few of my favorite examples that I stumbled upon uh, are actually in the U.S. Um, so there's one of them that was built in California that was actually put up for sale for uh, 950k in 2015, and I did some digging into it more recently. Um, per Realtor.com, it was never sold, and it was off. Now it's off the market, but it is valued at a cool 411k. Wow. And per the listing, has in quotes plenty of storage. So it could be the time to pounce if anybody's in the market That's for awesome. I feel a like, replica Wild West town. Aren't there a lot of towns like that that were movie sets that they built for specifically for movie sets? Like mm. in and the that old, got left like, over? Western Ooh. movie days? I think so. I mean, I think That's some cool. of them may just have been on studio lots, but I also think that they definitely built up. And, you know, it'd be things like where, like, the main street, like, look, if you were standing in the main you know, in the, in the main street, you would look around and it would be like a bunch of stores and everything would look normal, but it's actually just like the storefronts mm. and they would be like on stilts kind of behind them. And they would build these like sort of sprawling uh, downtown areas where, you know, you if you're walking on the street, everything would look like you were actually in some sort of frontier, dusty town. Wow. Right. But um, the actual buildings themselves were vacant or not? Uh, really? were in, I mean, didn't exist. It was just, just oh, the, it was the just front the wall. Yeah, oh, the, exactly. Oh, the facades. Okay. Thank you. I yeah, feel yeah. like that's such a Cecil B. DeMille thing to just build a whole town in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and then just leave it there when he's done with it. <laughs> like, all right, I'm Perfect. set. <laughs> Another example that I stumbled upon was constructed by billionaire Bill Wild Bill Coke, whose last name might sound familiar. Yeah, that's uh, the Coke so, brother's dad, right? Uh, no, one of the one of the lesser known Coke no. brothers, <laughs> <laughs> um, the wild one. But yeah, his <laughs> town has fifty buildings, um, and it's in Colorado. And he basically built it because he's a Wild West aficionado, hence his nickname, um, and has that kind of money. Um, aficionado to... is a funny word for fetishist. <laughs> <laughs> he also partly built this town to house the various knickknacks and tchotchkes from the Wild West that he's acquired over the years, including, to list a few, uh, Jesse James's gun, Wide Earp's vest, Sitting Bull's rifle, and a flag that belongs to General George Custer. So he has quite the assortment. Mm. Um, Also completely unrelated to Wild West towns, but actually somewhat related to Noah, the uh, the resident Texan of the Fax Machine podcast. Okay, wear it proud. (laughs) There you go. So uh, I found this just spontaneously in a Quartz article. Um, In a what? An article on Quartz. Okay. The, yeah, oh, yeah. Sorry, I get it. Okay. Uh, not like made of the, <laughs> of the geo. It's like chisel <laughs> <and> <laughs> just, just tripped over it on my way to work. It. I was I like, it now. <laughs> what does it say in this quartz? <laughs> um, so presumably inspired by uh, the chaotic kind of lawless connotations of the Wild West, apparently a Norwegian colloquial phrase to describe something as crazy is, uh, and I apologize in advance for butchering this, uh, debt air held Texas, or that's totally Texas. <laughs> All right, Emily, what have you got for us? This week I learned that thanks to an initiative by the U.S. Army, camels, alongside the deer and the antelope and the buffalo, 
once had a home on the range. Oh, yeah. Uh, So before I dive into this further, I should note that camels are actually no stranger to the North American continent, uh, dating back long before the Wild West. Their earliest ancestors actually lived here some 40 to 50 million years ago during the Eocene period. And the last camel native to North America, Camelops hysternus, uh, went extinct at the end of the Pleistocene, along with all sorts of other megafauna like mastodons and ground sloths and saber-toothed cats. Unlike their ancestors, the camels that I'm talking about in this fact, the ones that roamed the Wild West, were not native to the Americas, but rather imported here by the United States Camel Corps, a branch of the military whose tenure spanned 10 years in the mid-19th century, and whose objective was to see if camels, which in theory would be well adapted for the desert-like climate of the newly settled American Southwest, could be trained as pack animals and used in military operations. So at the time of the Camel Corps' inception, American settlers were migrating across the country to settle what would become the Wild West. And as we know from the Oregon Trail and Noah's Fact, that trip was long and grueling, particularly for the pack animals that were tasked with pulling wagons full of aspiring frontiers people and all their crap. Horses and mules aren't really designed for traveling those kinds of distances, especially in hot, dry conditions with infrequent stops for water. So a lot of times they actually died of dehydration en route. I don't mean to pull you up on that, but (laughs) horses and mules aren't designed at all. (laughs) There's no God! I'm wearing a shirt that says Viva la Evolucion. <laughs> my my question is are are camels domesticated like exclusively domesticated animals or are there wild camels in the world actually yes there are wild camels in the world and they live in uh, southern mongolia northern china and the gobi desert they had previously been thought to be escaped bactrian camels that had been domesticated and then went feral Mm -hmm. but they're actually recently through like genetic analysis were found to be a separate population that lived along or side or in a similar area as the original population that was domesticated Ah. um and there are some places in the world where that sort of feral situation did happen and uh, very notably in Australia. There's a huge number of feral camels just like wandering the Australian outback. But not in America. Well, there were until the middle of the last century, supposedly, by some eyewitness accounts. Yes, apparently they all escaped into Texas. Um, and at least until, yeah, until I think in the 1900s, somewhere in there, they, they were eventually hunted down and people haven't seen them. Um, because they're hiding. But if you go along the shores of the Rio Grande and listen at night, <laughs> you, you, <laughs> some people report hearing the sounds of a camel. Snuffling no, or whatever, could, whatever could camels you do. The, what is the, uh, sound the, of the camel? sonorous. <laughs> you can hear the camels <laughs> humping. The camels. Oh, no. <laughs> camel jokes. Camel jokes. Hashtag camel, camel jokes. jokes. <laughs> um, do you guys know what's inside camel humps? Uh, fat. Yeah, it's fat. And a yeah. lot of people think it's water, but those people forget that camels are not cactuses. <laughs> <laughs> That's the key difference. Yeah, I would say there's a major difference, and one of them is that there... If there's one thing to learn from this episode, it's that camels, cactuses, not the same thing. Not the same. Oh, yeah. So given that horses and mules, not amazing at what we were asking them to do, uh, a few uh, majors proposed a potential solution to this issue, uh, and their initiative was essentially to introduce camels to the U.S. and adapt them to the jobs that we were having these horses and mules do. This initiative actually caught the attention um, and support of a certain senator from Mississippi by the name of Jefferson Davis. Ah, boo. Yeah. Pro or Uh, anti? (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I'm hoping there's a consensus on that by now. But <laughs> I think Rob was asking whether he was for or against camels. <laughs> no, the well, podcast is against Jefferson Davis. Only time will tell. <laughs> I think we've been pretty clear on that issue. <laughs> no, he was in support. He was he was a member of the pro camel lobby, okay. which is an actual phrase that I encountered quite a bit in my reading. But yeah, so upon uh, Jefferson Davis's appointment as Secretary of War, uh, he presented this proposal to Congress as an opportunity to improve transportation uh, in the expanding Southwest. And Congress approved the project. Um, and Henry Wayne, a major who was kind of one of the initial proponents, um, was actually tasked with getting a bunch of camels. So he boarded a ship called the USS Supply, which stopped in Tunisia, Greece, Egypt, and Turkey, and picked up 33 camels and five camel drivers in its journey. Uh, the camels themselves were a mix of dromedary and Bactrian, which are like the two major varieties, as well as one Bugdi, which is apparently mm. a mix between, uh, or the progeny rather, of a male Bactrian and a female dromedary. But uh, after another one of these uh, camel collecting trips, uh, the camel station, as it was called, uh, of the Camel Corps was established in Camp Verde, Texas, and housed some 70 camels. So the first experiment that was done to assess the potential of camels as ships of the desert, uh, as they were <laughs> called, was in 1857 when a herd of 25 of them were sent off um, in a mission to sort of survey a wagon road that would run between a fort in New Mexico and uh, the border of modern-day Arizona and California. Um, I should note that the route they followed and scouted uh, is actually the modern-day route of Route 66. Mm. So thanks to those camels for doing a good job surveying. Um, unsurprisingly, the camels knocked their mission out of the park, carrying way more weight apiece than any mule or horse ever could. So these guys could handle up to 700 pounds, where a strong mule could take about half of that at the most. Um, they can travel for 30 to 40 miles a day. Um, and this trip total was over a thousand miles. So I dare say, like the Proclaimers, these critters would walk 500 <laughs> miles and 500, 500 more. more. <laughs> I was literally, I googled the length of that journey in hopes that I could make that joke, and I'm still very pleased that I could. Um, and yeah, and they could go without stopping for water for a week, if not over that. So basically, the contest between camels versus traditional pack animals was no contest at all, uh, so much so that Henry Wayne wrote to his friend, I believe at this time I may speak for every man in our party when I say that there is not one of them who would prefer the most indifferent of our camels to four of our best mules. Hmm. So Where are the camels now? An excellent question! <laughs> so basically, despite uh, the promise that camels clearly demonstrated um, and the fact that uh, they completed m many more of these surveying missions and were also used to just transport dried goods and even mail uh, briefly, um, uh, somewhat of a complicated thing happened around the time that their uh, sort of use was just beginning to be explored called the Civil War. <laughs> mm. So uh, It's amazing Jefferson Davis had so much time to spend on this whole camel thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, so his, unsurprisingly, his association with the Camel Corps was actually part of the reason why wow. it was dropped because, you know, he wasn't making many friends during the Civil War and uh, the Union Congress was not about to support anything that he had once backed. Well, yeah. So that was part of why the Camel Corps kind of fell to the wayside. Oh, man. But basically, yeah, so what happened was uh, with the end of the Camel Corps, you know, Camp Verde shut down and the army opted to sell the remaining camels to a variety of people, private citizens, uh, butchers who jerkied them, sadly, 
uh, various mining and prospecting companies, even railroad companies. They actually helps to build the Transcontinental Railroad in Arizona. Um, zoos, and also, I guess unsurprisingly, the Ringling Brothers Circus. Yeah. Um, ah. But there are also quite a few of them that were simply released into the wilderness. Um, and actually, those that were set free have been were, were spotted. And actually, those that were set free were spotted roaming the deserts uh, in herds as late as the mid twentieth century. Uh, and as you can imagine, that gave rise to some pretty interesting lore and urban legends by people who spotted them and were like, "The fuck is that?" <laughs> <laughs> so, to share two of my favorite anecdotes. So there's an urban legend that arose uh, in the 1880s in the Arizona Territory uh, about the Red Ghost. This legend involves sightings of a 30-foot-tall red-haired creature, and eyewitness accounts sort of describe the creature as devilish-looking, as many urban legendy creatures are described. <laughs> but yeah, so essentially it was a camel with a dead rider strapped to it, so gross. Wow, um, yeah. And in a later sighting, yeah. some someone actually shot at it, and it got away, but left behind a human skull that like fell off so Whoa. yeah i honestly feel bad for the camel so that's the red ghost that's a creepy one but the second story is much more heartwarming so the last uh well-documented um and confirmed camel sighting of one of these camels was actually a camel named topsy and she was seen mm. by many people as she was a celebrity at the griffith park zoo in oh. los angeles oh, nice. um so she lived to be 81 years old and over the oh. course of her yeah and over the course of her illustrious life um, so she was one of the first camels that came over in that original trip on the USS Supply. Um, she was thought to have actually completed that initial kind of pilot journey that I mentioned earlier as well. Uh, she also worked in a mine, performed with the Ringling Brothers, and even hit the silver screen a couple of times. Yeah, I was going to say, I bet she went to L.A. to pursue a career in acting because she was a drama dairy. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice, very nice. That was excellent. I actually encountered another kind of interesting tangent just in researching this story. Uh, so there is a sincere interest in reviving the efforts of the U.S. Camel Corps in some respects, but for a very different purpose than what it was originally designed for. Um, so actually, efforts to bring camels to the U.S. have been more recently proposed by ecologists. Ooh. Yeah. So uh, this comes from the concept and conservation um, of Pleistocene rewilding, which mm. basically entails introducing the modern-day relatives of extinct megafauna to the areas that were once inhabited by their ancestors and in order to sort of uh, refill the niches um, that their ancestors used to occupy. Mm. And in doing so, rebalance their ecosystems um, and kind of restore biodiversity. So the idea behind this is that a lot of these megafauna were at or at least near the top of their food chains and were major predators in these environments. So now issues that are frequent, like um, sort of overpopulation of deer in national parks, that results in them having to actually be hunted to keep their numbers down um, to an appropriate degree. Mm -hmm. That could be remedied by reintroducing megafauna and sort of trying to reestablish the conditions in which these ecosystems originally evolved. There are um, some actually uh, sort of active or at the very least planned projects to kind of attempt these initiatives. Uh, to clarify, they sort of would uh, occur in sort of controlled contained scenarios. So we wouldn't like import a bunch of lions and just release them all over the United States or something like that. But it would be sort of in an enclosed larger space, kind of reintroduce them to the ecosystem and see what happens. Um, but a few efforts around the world. 
uh, that kind of are based upon this principle include uh, the Randers Rainforest Zoo in Denmark uh, has the plan to introduce a population of Asian elephants. Um, the Australian Rhino Project is actually already ongoing. Um, and this one is kind of cool in that it also uh, includes the facet of conservation basically with the idea of uh, taking a species that's already on the brink of extinction um, and sort of trying to conserve it in a place apart from where it originates. So conserving rhinos by trying to see if they can do well in Australia um, as they're going extinct in Africa. Um, and a modern example of sort of fortuitous or unintentional rewilding that I stumbled upon and couldn't resist talking about um, are Pablo Escobar's cocaine hippos. <laughs> Wait. Does this ring a bell? <laughs> they are not hippos constructed from cocaine, to, to put that out there. So that just... would be pretty magnificent. <laughs> and basically, Pablo Escobar, with his uh, mountains of cocaine-derived money um, from his mountains of cocaine, opted to, <laughs> um, uh, basically built himself this huge, expansive, luxurious estate uh, and filled it with all sorts of wild, exotic animals, including hippos. Um, and after he died, they just kind of, some of them escaped into the wild wow. and proliferated really effectively. <laughs> Where was it? Wow. Uh, in Colombia. In Colombia, okay. and they're And they're still there. Um, so now there's sort of... Uh, an issue in Colombia of whether these hippos should be hunted and <laughs> these, removed. These but dang hippos are everywhere. <laughs> these dang hippos are everywhere. Um, but yeah, so there's kind of a sort of discussion happening right now with the Colombian government and also ecologists who are actually advocating for uh, leaving this growing population of cocaine hippos alone to see if they might have some beneficial effects on the environment. I think maybe a rebranding effort might help. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> these just cocaine hippos. Oh, Pablo one. Escobar's cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> like they come in for a job and they're like, oh, what's your resume? It's like, well, I'm a hippopotamus from Colombia. And they're like, oh, you're a cocaine hippo. <laughs> you never get in the job. I'm trying to leave that life behind. <laughs> just want a fresh start. So if we have a second, I had just one touch point of camel type animals in the United States. And so camels are in a, a kind of bigger family of camelids, which includes llamas, alpacas, and vicuñas, kind of the American camelid species. Um, and I, I worked in spinal research for my PhD. And I remember going to a conference and walking around and looking at all the posters and all the science that all the other smart people were doing that was better than mine. And <laughs> it's like other smart people. <laughs> <laughs> all the smart people around me. <laughs> But I found there's a kid who went to, or there's a gentleman who went to Brigham Young University. <laughs> Ooh, a gentleman. Wow. He's an adult. <laughs> but <laughs> I met this grad student, and he, he was uh, had a poster on his research, and it was roughly entitled Biomechanical Analysis of Camelid Cervical Inverte Intervertebral Discs, which is everything that I study was except it, for the it, camelid part. Was it roughly titled that, or did you just read the title of it? So that's, that the, that's the name of his paper in the Journal of uh, Orthopedic Translational Medicine. Oh, um, So I don't know what the, the poster was called. It must have been close. Okay. I but I remember looking at it and being like, oh, I do biomechanical analysis of intervertebral discs, but what are the camels? <laughs> and so I literally just looked at him and said, you have camels? <laughs> and he said, excuse me, what? <laughs> And I was How like, did you get in here? <laughs> You're not one of us smart gentlemen from BYU. 
But so I found this really fascinating. The neck of a camel or the cervical spine of camels and specifically of things like llamas that have very elongated necks, it has a, a curvature that goes out at, in the front and then back up, which mimics the human mm. spine really well. And so, so using the lower part of the cervical spine of a camel in the neck is the same kind of loading pattern that you would see in a human lumbar spine, which is very hard to get to. And so they used it as a model of loading and degeneration. And so in Utah, there were literally just farms full of alpaca that grad students would go to and do all these tests and like bring them in for MRIs and stuff and, wow. and check on the state of their alpaca. And I didn't care about his poster at all. I was like, "You, how often do you see them? Do you like, <laughs> are they yours? Like, <laughs> What are their names? <laughs> This week I learned that the first woman ever to rob a stagecoach and live was also the last. Barely spent any time in prison and lived until at least 1955. So this was a really interesting fact for me. One, I'd never, you know, really considered how many female stagecoach robbers there were in the United States. It appears that there were two, (laughs) ever, and one died. So we don't really have many records. The other was Pearl Hart, which is a great name if you're going to be a famous... Yeah. Yeah. And, like, I think that maybe just, like, how catchy it is, it it really matters in this story. Because she is not someone who is hated for her crime. And, in fact, she gained so much fame from being a female stagecoach robber that it really kind of shielded her from all of the negative side effects that usually come with committing crime. Um, Okay, but Pearl was a Canadian girl. Um, She eloped with a a pretty awful husband, it seemed, uh, in her late teens. He was abusive, gambling, drunk, um, whom she left and got back with multiple times. Um, And so she lived this kind of not-so-great life in Canada. Um, But she watched the Buffalo Bill Wild West show quite a bit. was really enamored with the idea of the American West. And so she convinced her husband to take her to Colorado. Um, so they were riding the train, and he, she allegedly met this charming piano player, got off the train with him, and left her husband to go riding wherever the train was going. <laughs> Just so cut him off completely. Wow. Nice. And thus started her life as like an independent kind of criminal, would be the right word. <laughs> so she had a bunch of minor crimes, um, little things, kind of uh, petty thefts and, and misleading uh, situations where she would take people's money. Well, sure, you got to start small. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. just a little bit. <laughs> um, but in Arizona, where she wound up in the late 1890s, um, she wound up needing a lot of money. And so with a friend, she decided that uh, in order to raise this money, she would rob a stagecoach. Now, very importantly and very significantly, um, the money that she needed was to go to see her ailing mother, um, who had become very sick. And that's why she needed it so desperately. The decision to rob a stagecoach was a little bit unusual at that time, actually. you think it would be a like almost logical criminal decision, um, but stagecoaches carried a relatively small amount of money most of the time. Um, it was a dangerous thing to do. And I guess kind of in a, in a ironic turn of events, people had stopped robbing stagecoaches largely because they used to have what was called a shotgunner, someone who would ride along in the stagecoach with a shotgun to protect it. And this particular line of stagecoaches in Arizona stopped doing that like years before because no one was robbing them anymore. Mm. And so Pearl and her friend came upon a stagecoach, robbed them at gunpoint, and collected all $431. Yeah. Uh, which is, uh, this is 1899, mind you. So we're not, like, this is very late frontier era. Um, that's like 12000 modern dollars. Uh, and they were on the lamb for about seven days riding around in the deserts of Arizona. 
probably with tons of camels everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> One can only hope. <laughs> um, and so she was caught, and uh, newspaper headlines were caught that, oh, the stagecoach robbers were, were brought in, and one of them was a woman, and, like, all, like it became a media sensation, and she was a star. Uh, Cosmopolitan magazine, which apparently did news once, <laughs> shockingly. Wow. Yeah. So the Cosmo ran a piece that said that Cart was, quote, just the opposite of what would be expected of a woman stagecoach robber. Well, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is a perplexing line, but I, I think the insinuation is, well, if you're a robber, you're clearly ugly. But Pearl was not ugly. <laughs> Some women can't have it all. <laughs> right. <laughs> Good looks. Mm. All the money from a stagecoach. <laughs> a name like Pearl Hart. She was kind of a media darling. She was this woman who had robbed a stagecoach at the age of 21, survived, made it away, got caught, was now in prison. She comes to her court appearance, and what, what amazingly happens is for her and her co-robber, um, the jury found her not guilty, and they were released with no charges. And the judge, Judge Fletcher M. Doan, was shocked and angered by the jury and scolded them for failure to perform their duty. Wow. Because he felt that they had been incorrectly swayed by her, her heartfelt petition that she was just a poor girl, not from these parts, <laughs> trying to get back to her ma, and she just needed a little money. Basically, 12 male jurors all swooned and said, like, oh, yeah, she's fine. And then also, like, that guy that was with him, her, also fine. And just let them go. I love this story. You know what's great? Um, <laughs> uh, one of the things that's really interesting about her crime uh, was that, so um, after they took whatever the $431 is, they gave a little bit back to ensure that the people on the stagecoach had enough money for food and to get a hotel the next night. Mm-hmm. And then... At the trial, she actually has a pretty famous like uh, phrase in the history of feminism, and it, she said during the trial, quote, I shall not consent to be tried under a law in which my sex had no voice in making. Yeah. This is amazing that uh, a, a group of 12 <laughs> men like found that argument persuasive. What's, what's really fascinating is, uh, and so she, she actually was arrested shortly thereafter um, on, on unrelated charges, basically because... The judge was so mad that she'd gotten away in the first place <laughs> that he found anything else to arrest her for. Um, and her partner managed to escape and was, like, never caught. And wow. so he served almost no jail time. Boot. She, yeah, uh, the John Boot. 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 <laughs> Mr. Boot. I am Boot. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but Hart was in prison for about two years. And she, she had the biggest cell in the prison. Um, she brought, to, you know, she brought to light the fact that most prisons were not equipped to handle... Um, women prisoners. They didn't have any resources for them. They didn't have separate spaces or utilities. Um, so she kind of got to stay in like one of the better rooms and was very friendly with the guards for which, you know, she needed to ask a lot of favors and like kind of have special treatment. Um, and then in 1902, uh, she received a pardon from Arizona territorial governor, Alexander Brody, um, which he didn't justify. He just <laughs> pardoned her. <laughs> yeah. And there are all kinds of like rumors and allegations about like how she like like curried all this favor with the guards, with the governors, with all the people. Um, but the the wardens of the jails really liked her because she would say nice things about their prison when people came to interview her daily. Huh. And they would come to take photo shoots, and she would leave the prison and do a photo shoot and come back. And she would say, "Oh, they treat me so well here. It's a great prison." And so the mm-hmm. warden was happy, she was happy, like the media was happy. It was this just like ridiculous <laughs> situation. <laughs> Or she's like... <laughs> Five stars. Would recommend. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody try it. <laughs> and so 
what I find amazing was that she had a lot of time to be introspective about her life and her career. And so she wrote, uh, she wrote a book about it, and she like she acted out basically her own character um, in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, which had pretty much inspired her to become a stagecoach robber in the first place. So she picked up an alias and performed with them for a couple of years. Then she ran a cigar store in Kansas City. Um, she was arrested again and then acquitted. Uh, so she ran this life kind of in and out of crime, never having to face like any real serious, serious jail time. Um, and she lived for another 50 years in Kansas City, wow. just kind That's of, awesome. you know, on and off uh, the celebrity radar. Um, and I think it's just so cool because she did write a lot of things about um, her life at that time. And she had this quote uh, that said uh, about the time leading right up to when she was stagecoach robbing. I was 22 years old. I was good-looking, desperate, discouraged, and ready for anything that might come. I do not care to dwell on this period of my life. <laughs> and I think for anyone in their 20s, like, yeah, right on. Yeah. <laughs> I feel that. <laughs> but just such such an interesting person, such a cool story. Um, and one of the few kind of famous female um, robbers in, in the history of the U.S., or especially of the frontier period, you know, like pre-Bonnie and Clyde era. There is a short list of other ones, if I could share a few names with you. Go for it. Pearl Hart had a fantastic name for being a robber. Not everyone did, so many of them had to get nicknames. <laughs> One that I particularly liked was Sarah Jane Newman, who was known as Sally Skull. Oh. There's another one, Mary Catherine Heroni, who I looked up pictures and I really don't understand why she had the nickname Big Nose Kate. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Which is just brutal. <laughs> then there was another one whose name was Belle Star. And then this one I think is really cool. Um... Her name was Eleanor Dumont, but she went by the alias Madame Moustache. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so funny. Apparently she was part of all of these robberies, and she, she like painted on like a little, essentially, Hitler mustache and like yeah. went into the bank. <laughs> I mean, that would be pretty scary. <laughs> yeah. So some other people I thought had really great names and also really interesting stories were, uh, it was two like very, very young girls. They were like in between like 11 and 13 years old. Oh, wow. Um, they were like real outlaws um, and they stole horses and they apparently uh, in their Wikipedia pages it said they sold alcohol to Indians and like apparently, I don't know, but they did a bunch of things. Um, apparently they just kind of hung around with other outlaw gangs and their names were Cattle Annie and Little Britches. Wow. Yeah, and so Cattle Annie was uh, Anna Emmeline McDoulet, or McDoulet, I guess, uh, and then Little Britches was Ginny Stevenson, and they were crazy, crazy young, and I think they were apprehended when they were like 12 or 13 years old, wow. and they were active for about two years, and they were out there like mostly on their own, um, and they, they were so hardcore, like they were, they were captured by U.S. Marshals after like a, a long chase. Um, Cattle Annie was uh, captured trying to climb out of a window to escape uh, by a marshal. Um, and then uh, a different marshal, Bill Tilgman, had a much more difficult time getting Little Britches, who actually engaged in, a, in like a fist fight and shot a rifle at both of the marshals. And oh yeah, and, and just and basically they they did not go quietly, and these were like preteen <laughs> girls. Um, but there was another really uh, famous woman of the Wild West, and that was Laura Bullion, aka the Rose of the Wild Bunch. Mm. And so Laura 
uh, ran with like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, that group of people. And so her father was a Native American who was also a bank robber. Um, and then just sort of being born into that life of crime, she eventually joined the, their Wild Bunch gang and became known uh, as the Rose of the Wild Bunch. Um, and so she like sold a lot of the stolen goods uh, and made a lot of connections that provided uh, the gang with a steady supply of like horses and other things like that. She periodically was romantically involved with a number of different members uh, on and off. And on certain occasions, uh, she actually dressed up like a man, as you were saying, that was mm-hmm. something that happened a lot um, mm-hmm. in sort of the frontier outlaw period. Um, women who were involved in these these kind of like escapades would dress up like men and join with the rest of the gang and like train robberies and stuff. Um, and so in 1901, she was actually finally arrested in St. Louis and she'd had about $8,500 worth of like stolen banknotes that just she had on her. She was released from prison about three and a half years later she retired and then became an interior designer in Memphis, Tennessee. So you said Pearl Hart died in 1955. Mm-hmm. Laura Bullion died in 1961. Wow. Yeah. Whoa. And that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> she she like robbed trains in the Wild West and she died in the 60s. She heard Elvis. <laughs> I know. It's, it's amazing. Her gravestone in Memphis has a rose with a bunch of like thorny vines all over it, uh, and actually then under that it reads the thorny rose. Um, and she was, um, of course, the last surviving member of the Wild Bunch, so it's pretty interesting. But anyway, the point is, <laughs> she was she had a very long career, mostly as an interior designer in Memphis, Tennessee. And try as hard as I could, I can't find any of her like work. I was really hoping to be able to find some interiors she had designed, um, but no. I, I was unable to, but I, it's just fascinating. And the ultimate irony would have been if she had been like consulted specifically with banks. Like, oh yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> interior you know, design we should, slash uh, security consult. With this, with this, with this vault, let's go for open concept. Yeah. <laughs> These walls seem so thick and yeah. oppressive. Let's knock down this wall here. <laughs> really, you just air the space out, throw open all the windows. You know? <laughs> so I opted to. Uh, look into famous stagecoach robbers in general and found uh, the tale of Black Bart, who, in my opinion, Mm. as I'm sure you will soon agree, was one of the classiest, at the very least, the most literary um, of the stagecoach robbers of his time. So he was a gentleman (laughs) robber. Could have gone with BYU. Yeah, actually... He was actually referred to as the gentleman robber wow. by the wow. the time, so very nice. Um, but essentially, uh, basically the story behind him is he started his robbing career based on a very strong vendetta that he had against Wells Fargo. <laughs> so, Honestly, it, it, you know what? That attitude is pretty applicable today as well. Have you met Elizabeth Warren? <laughs> he's, he's about to be a very sympathetic character <laughs> really soon. But essentially, he tried opening up a mine in Montana, um, and some Wells Fargo reps showed up and tried to buy it from him, and he didn't want to sell it. And the way that mining uh, worked back then, you needed flowing water to actually pan for gold. So they shut off his water and ruined his mind. So he was like, ah, Wells Fargo. <laughs> and he was this guy who had no history of crime, no experience robbing, which I guess you don't until you start robbing things. Um, but the best part about him was that in reading about him, he does not strike me as your sort of stereotypical kind of gritty, spittoon-spitting, like, gunslinging robber. <laughs> um, for one thing, 
Uh, his trademarks, at least in terms of appearance, uh, so one of his trademarks was that he was always very nicely dressed. So he had a nice coat and a bowler hat. Um, but to look kind of like a criminal would put a flower sack over his head because, you know, you need to have something. Um, and his victims, people he robbed, um, reported that he was surprisingly very polite and pleasant to talk to and would joke with them, had kind of a genteel disposition. Um, he never swore and he never actually fired any guns. He was also afraid of horses, so never rode any horses <laughs> to rob people. Um, he was kind of clever. Um, and actually, his first robbery, he tricked the stagecoach driver into thinking that he was uh, sort of driving into a thicket that had other bandits with guns waiting uh, for him to arrive. And he handed over the money, and then upon getting out and investigating, saw that all those revolvers, or not revolvers, uh, all of those rifles that seemed to be protruding from the bushes were actually just some sticks that <laughs> Black Bart had tied together kind of artfully. That's funny. Um, but I mentioned earlier that he was literary, and that was because he had a habit of leaving poetry behind at his crime That's scenes. Awesome. Wow. Um, he only did this twice, but uh, he actually got his moniker by uh, his sign off for his first poem. Uh, in which he identified himself as Black Bart the Poet. So he also uh, had hmm. a bit of a taste for wordplay as well. So it was P-O-8, like the poet. Oh. Um, but to give you a sample of my favorite of his works. <clears throat> I've labored long and hard for bread, for honor, and for riches. But on my corns, too long you've tread, you fine-haired sons of bitches. <laughs> nice! <laughs> so funny. <laughs> So that leaves us with just the quiz, which is loosely inspired by this week's theme. Uh, I won't tell you the degree of looseness uh, exactly, okay. but I'll leave it to you to figure out over time. Okay. I think, okay. I think it, it may become apparent. It's sort of a secret theme to all the questions, but that theme is derived from this week's theme. Okay. And that's all I'll say about it. Okay. Gotcha. All right. So question number one, the three-toed sloth. And the dwarf seahorse have the distinction of holding what Guinness record for each of their respective phyla? The, so, three-toed sloth, do we know anything about, are they the slowest? <laughs> is the dwarf, I mean, everything I know about seahorses is like the males. How many toes do sloths normally have, do you think? Well, there's two-toed short... and three-toed, but it can't be most toes, because <laughs> we'd win. <laughs> well, Yes. <laughs> I'm just imagining like the the correlation between toe quantity and speed. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, seahorses don't have any toes, so it could be the fewest toes. <laughs> seahorses, seahorses are tied with all fish for the fewest toes. <laughs> well, but, then, wait, but there's a two-toed sloth. So, yeah, I mean, so the three-toed sloth, it's slow. It hangs from trees. Yeah. Okay, seahorses. I I mean, I guess if they're if they're really tiny. And perhaps it might take them a while to traverse. <laughs> That's true. Sort of like relative, or I know they're like distance covered could be really low, like yeah. lowest distance covered over a lifetime. I mean, okay. <laughs> That's probably also true based on the actual Guinness record that they have, okay. which is a much simpler way of saying it. Which is basically the, something you've already said. The, the slowest? Yes, they are the okay. slowest of their respective class. So the, the three-toed sloth is the slowest mammal. That we have recorded. Um, it has an average ground speed of about six feet per minute. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And that's when it's really, really going for it. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, seahorses in general have very small 
um, pectoral and like side fins, so they don't move very quickly. They can kind of just jut around. Um, and the dwarf one is extremely uh, ineffective at swimming in a forward direction. So they are the mm. slowest members. So mm. that is your answer. Yeah. Okay. Question number two. What eukaryote is approximately 50% protein by volume and an excellent source of niacin and folic acid? Something that people are like, we eat this to get folic acid and niacin. It's also something that I had to describe as a eukaryote. Um, so is it yeast? Yes. Okay. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I, then that would to be honest, sense. Rob, I've never heard anyone say like, you know what? I'm feeling low on niacin and folic acid. <laughs> Anybody got any yeah. yeast? <laughs> Looking for a spot of Marmite. <laughs> but what I'm saying is you could. Okay. <laughs> uh, sure. But yeah, it is. Okay, so it's yeast. Yes. Far from the most popular um, source, source. of folic acid. <laughs> yes. But... Okay. So we have... The, they're slowest, mm-hmm. and then we have a yeast. Okay. 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 We're, we're gonna keep building. Like up process. Process. Sure. Yeah. Okay. sure. Okay. Question number three: What is the alternate name of the Chilean island and World Heritage Site, Rapa Nui? Easter Island. Oh. Yeah, Easter Island. Yeah. Yeah. Easter Island, exactly. And so uh, it's a really interesting place, Easter Island. Native Polynesians arrived there around 1200 AD, it's believed, and they crafted those famous large uh, moai heads. Uh, which decorate the island, and so uh, it was named Easter Island much later by European settlers. Okay, we have Easter, probably, yeast, slow. slow. Okay. Okay. Question number four. What outdoors company is named after, quote, generally the coldest, iciest, and most formidable route to climb? North Face. Mm, yes, it's the North Face. Okay, Okay, so now we have North and East, but (laughs) no South or the Wild West. Is the theme every direction but west? Well, well wait. Just, just, okay. Some are easier to With work some into. With other things sprinkled in. Yeah. So you, I'm just saying. But if you look back at all of your answers, do, do you slow. have a... Slowest, slow. Slower, lowest, slow. Okay. I was very duplicitous at the beginning, but I'll push ahead. Because okay. I think you're I think you're sniffing on the theme. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, also, an interesting thing about the North Face is their um, their their curved logo is actually a representation of some rock outcrops and mm. possibly half dome in Yosemite. Oh, yeah, nice, it's very similar. Question number five: What Alfred Hitchcock classic starts with a staged DUI in Glen Cove, Long Island, and ends in the vicinity of Mount Rushmore? North by Northwest. North by Northwest. Directions. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Okay, so that was the that was the the reveal, I guess. Slow, so, slow west. west. Oh <laughs> no, <laughs> slow west. Okay. okay. So okay. Now, now you know okay. the jig. Yeah. All right. <laughs> now we know it's cardinal directions. Question number six. While not actually based on a real person, the main character of what television show is purportedly inspired by individuals named John Rocker and Mitch Wild Thing Williams. I don't know many so shows. it's it's a TV show. It's a relatively modern right. one, and so I think like my short list was there are probably only about three or four that have directions in them. Is it Westworld? It is not Westworld. Damn. Oh. <laughs> but That's I do believe it's an HBO show. <laughs> it's not. Uh, so. It's on the same American, network. so not EastEnders. Not EastEnders. Okay. So it is. Written by Will Ferrell and Adam McKay. It's a comedy series that only had 29 Oh, episodes. East Side and Down. East Side and... East Bound and Down. East Bound and Down. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, In which Danny McBride plays a retired and somewhat 
a ludicrous baseball player. Okay. Um, yeah, so based on two real people, both of whom disavow any relation to the show, <laughs> and Will Ferrell says, yeah, it's not them for real, but they inspire the character. Okay. <laughs> right, so it's eastbound and down. Okay, question number seven. I'll start this with a little background, because I, this one t- took a little working to get to. Um, but so you need to know about something called Autodin. Um, Autodin is the automatic digital network system, which was a military application for communication developed in the 60s, and it became the precursor to the modern internet. Um, so it was a really reliable service that operated at high availability using mechanical punch cards uh, in order to send and receive data. During peak operation, Autodin handled 20 million messages a month. When they tried to update it to Autodin 2, it didn't work, and it was replaced by packet switch networks made by a company called BBN, who created ARPANET, which is essentially Uh Mm -hmm. what led to the modern internet. So Autodin was right on the cusp of becoming the internet, essentially, technology-wise, and they failed to do so. What company was a primary contractor and user of Autodin for United States Communications? And I'll say this one has a tie to our theme kind of more directly than most of the others. So it was uh, oh, sorry, not Westinghouse. A, ooh, good guess. Not a, not a person's name, though. Sorry. Looking yeah. for <laughs> a company? It's a company name. Okay. Um, but so this company still exists. They've just transformed what their business is. So they were known for secure transfer of information and money. Oh, so Wells Fargo? Not Wells Fargo. Oh, oh I'm sorry. It's Western Union. Yes. That's what I meant. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Western, so Union. Western Union. Western yeah. Union, exactly. And Western Union amazingly began as a company in 1851 as the New York and Mississippi Valley Printing Telegraph Company, and they served delivering telegrams continuously for 155 years wow. until 2006 when they sent their last telegram. Wow. Yeah. At what? which time they were still sending about 20,000 telegrams a year. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Who was still sending telegrams? You know, just like grandpa. Happy birthday. Stop. <laughs> Sounds telegram to grandson. <laughs> Sounds like more, probably like more of Stop. Yeah. <laughs> Pearl Hart. Probably like 1955, 1961. We're still sending telegrams. And question number eight. NFL quarterback Kurt Warner had a 65.1 completion percentage in his 58 games with what modern NFL franchise pertinent to the theme? Oh, Cardinals. Cardinals! Oh! Hey, we got nice. a sports question. Sweet. In Arizona, too. <laughs> yeah. Where all the camels are. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes together. Whoa. <laughs> and so, um, interestingly, the word cardinal, as in cardinal directions, comes from the Latin word cardo, which is the street, often the main street of a city that runs from north to south. Huh. And so a city would be huh. built uh, around its cardo. And so the directions north and south would be cardinal directions from the street, as would east and west being the kind of perpendicular cardinal directions, uh, which actually has nothing at all to do, uh, it's etymologically, with like the Catholic cardinals or mm. with the bird cardinals named after them. Interesting. So, yeah. Very cool. What was the idea behind that, that you would never be like traveling towards the sun and not have like... Having the main road be north-south. It's an interesting question. I don't actually know why that was what they did, but that was like their kind of like city planning 101 was build a big north-south thoroughfare. So, Emily, in in the city that you're designing, you could only go north or south. So it would be like a bunch of (laughs) parallel roads that aren't connected to each other in any way. No one talked to each other. (laughs) I just mean, why is the main road always north-south? 
Well, you can't look at our brethren to the east. <laughs> it's morning. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Facts Machine, all about the Wild West. I hope you enjoyed all of the wild facts that we dug up for you guys. <laughs> And if you did enjoy it, please let us know by getting in touch with us on Instagram or Twitter at FaxMachinePod or find our Facebook page at FaxMachinePodcast. Also, a big shout out to the official composer of the Fax Machine theme song, Anthony Antonelli. And keep a lookout for details about our live show coming up. All right. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Question number six, while not actually based on a real person, the main character of what television show is purported... And I think we broke. The main character of what television show is purported...